You may be seated. I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke. We're going to be taking a look this morning at uh, chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 4 as we do our introduction to Luke. It has been many years, I realize, since I had preached through uh, the Gospel of, the Luke, of Luke. The last time I preached through it, I finished it up in 2005. So, uh, well over a decade ago now, almost two decades. Um, I do want to go back through this uh, this particular gospel. I would say it's my second favorite gospel after John. I know you're not supposed to rank your gospel favorites, but uh, I do uh, very much enjoy Luke. As I will mention, I enjoy it particularly because of the detail that as a historian he includes. He is one of the, uh, the ancient world's greatest historians. It used to be the case that atheists and unbelievers would uh, pour their scorn upon his work because uh, they felt that he had committed errors at various points. But as time and tide have continued on, uh, it has been shown that Luke was more accurate than his detractors. Time and again, uh, Luke has been proven right, and uh, various other modern historians have been proven wrong. But before we turn our attention to the gospel that Luke wrote, let us turn to the God who gave him the words to write in the first place, and let's ask for his blessing. Please join me. O Sovereign Lord, now as we come once again to your word, we pray, O Lord, that you would shine that light in our hearts that we need so very badly. As the seed falls, Lord, we know that uh, if it doesn't find good soil, it will do us no good. And so we pray, O Lord, that as it comes to us, it would go down into our hearts and there find rich soil in which to grow and to bless us with a harvest, to give you that fruit that you look for. And we pray, O oh Lord, therefore, that you would fix our attention on these words of Luke, that you would help us to understand the context and the setting in which he wrote and the importance of what he wrote before we get into the meat of this gospel. Let us be thankful for its author and its writer. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Luke chapter 1, and I will be reading verses 1 through 4. I remind you, this is the word of the living God. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the world delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things, from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right, let me start out by asking you a question. Let's test your Bible trivia knowledge. Which Holy Spirit-inspired author wrote more of the New Testament than any other? Which one? Answer in your minds. Do not answer out loud. As soon as I give the instruction, it is broken. Is this not man in, in uh, the way it works? Yes. Um, well, for those of you who are thinking Paul before the correct answer was given, uh, Paul is the author of more books of the New Testament than any other. He did write roughly 24% of the total uh, New Testament with 32,408 words, all told. But he was not uh, the author of the majority of the New Testament. The man who wrote more of the New Testament than any other was Paul's helper, Luke. He wrote 28% of it and a grand total of 37,932 words. You can go back and check if you would like. Uh, but uh, you might want to just take my word for that. These words, obviously, that he wrote were contained in two books. First, the Gospel according to Luke that we just started here, 
and of course the book of Acts. Now in some cases it is difficult to determine who wrote a particular book of the Bible. For instance, there are some books that we, we have very little clue as to, we can speculate endlessly as to who their authors were, but we don't have any definite indication. Uh, in the New Testament that would include, for instance, the book of Hebrews. In the Old Testament, the historical books. Many of them do not uh, say which author wrote them. We uh, have historical sources that say, oh, so-and-so wrote it and so on, but nothing definite. But that's not the case here. We are certain who wrote Luke. And this is because the author begins by addressing a man named Theophilus and saying that he had undertaken to write an orderly account, uh, a narrative about the things in which he was instructed. He is obviously a convert to the Christian faith. He was not one of the original apostles, but he was somebody who was early converted, probably by the ministry of Paul, and who then began to look more eagerly into the things which he learned. I don't know about you, but that was my experience as well. When I became a Christian, I, I did not have a background in the Christian faith. I was raised in a mostly pagan family. We only attended uh, church when my father was filled with feelings of religious guilt or on Christmas and Easter. And one of the things that uh, happened after I was converted through the uh, preaching of the gospel on the radio was I had this desire to find out more about the gospel that had saved me. And so I joined a, uh, an organization called the C.S. Lewis Institute who taught courses, seminary level courses. And I began drinking in all of this and getting materials from Ligonier and so on. I had this natural desire to learn more about the things that I had been initially instructed in but to know them more perfectly. And I hope that's your desire. I hope that you have been converted. You've been instructed in the things of the gospel, but that you're never satiated, that you, when it comes to the word of God, that you always want to learn more about it, that you want to plunge more deeply into it. It's said of the word of uh, God that it is shallow enough that a lamb could wade, but deep enough that an elephant could swim easily in it. It is something that we will never reach the bottom of. We can apprehend the word of God. We can never totally comprehend it. We'll never come to as complete an understanding of it as God has of his own word, for instance. But we can come to a greater and greater knowledge of it, not only because of the written materials we have, but of course because of the gift of God's Holy Spirit dwelling in the hearts of believers, illuminating the word so that we understand it. Well, Luke addresses this fellow Theophilus, and he says that he has undertaken to write an account, a, a more complete narrative about the things that he's been instructed. And these things, therefore, refer to the teachings of the Christian faith, and particularly, in this case, the life of our Savior Jesus Christ, his earthly ministry. Now, this dovetails, incidentally, that introduction, I'm sure you know this, dovetails perfectly with the introduction to a second book, which is the book of Acts. There you go. In Acts chapter 1, you may want to turn ahead just slightly in your Bible through the uh, Gospels to Acts chapter 1. And there you will see immediately the similarity in the introduction to the two books. Starting with verse 1, we read of Acts 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. 
There, of course, and actually is making reference to his earlier book. So we know that Luke wrote uh, not just the third gospel, he also wrote the book of Acts, and he considered them to be really two volumes, and we need to understand this, of the same story. In fact, he probably delivered the two scrolls simultaneously to Theophilus. The gospel of Luke is a history of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and Acts tells us how the work of Christ continues in the church that he founded and is still building. So in one sense, we might say Luke was the story of the planting of the gospel tree, and Acts is the story of the fruit that that gospel tree has borne and continues to bear throughout the world. Now, who was Luke? Who is the author? Uh, in Greek, his name was Lucas. Uh, Luke was a physician by trade. Paul refers to him as the beloved physician in Colossians 4.14. Many have speculated because of that that he was probably a slave. In the ancient Roman world, it was very common for households to train up one member of the household to be a physician to take care of the needs of uh, that particular household. We don't know that for certain, but that is something that is speculated. But the fact that he's a physician really comes out in his writing as he is, uh, is writing uh, his gospel narrative. W.K. Hobart, uh, in his book, The Medical Language of St. Luke, uh, which was written in 1882, points out the language used by the author of Luke Acts is that of a physician. Again and again, he includes details that a doctor would be interested in. And he asks the kind of questions that a doctor would want to know and then answers them. As we go through Luke, you'll notice he takes care to record the specific details, for instance, that a doctor would. So, for instance, he's the only gospel writer who records that Peter's mother had a high fever, for instance. Uh, he records how long the woman had this flow of blood. You remember the one who touches the tassel of Jesus' garment and is healed, and that she had gone to many physicians over a long period of time and had not obtained healing. He records that it was, and he's the only gospel author who does this, he records that it was the right hand of the man uh, that was withered, who was healed in the synagogue by Jesus. And you can imagine him as he was asking the, uh, the, uh, the apostles about the events of the life of Christ and what happened in the garden. Now, Peter, was it the left or the right ear that you cut off? Peter's saying, well, I right-handed. It was the right ear. It was the right ear of Malchus the servant, and he alone records that detail, that it was the right ear of the servant that was cut off. So we see in that, and in so many other ways, that Luke had access not just to Paul, but to the other apostles. He speaks of them as the eyewitnesses and the ministers of the word here in Luke 1 and verse 2. These were the men who sat with him, who talked to him, who he no doubt probed asking these questions. What happened then? Where did you go after that? What did he say? Whose court was it? Who was ruling at that time? What, what particular district was it? He took down those things and then he gave them to us. He delivers these details that he received from others and then passes them on to us. In fact, Luke is, is meticulous. He is scientific, and he's got this medical bent that just comes out all over the place where he's writing. No other gospel spent so much time recording details as his does. In his invest, uh, investigation, obviously, he speaks to the eyewitnesses, he records the events, he probably traveled also to the places that he is speaking of, possibly while Paul, for instance, was in, in jail, uh, first in Caesarea, and then later on as he was uh, sent to jail in Rome. It's uh, probably the case that Luke went about recording these things, writing them down. And when Luke says, for instance, that such and such a man ruled over such and such a place at such and such a time in 
inevitably, and this is always the case, subsequent archaeology, discoveries of tablets in various cities and so on, have proven him to be right. And so as we go along uh, and we come to these names and these events, I'll share, I'll try to share at least, where they're corroborated outside the Bible. The reason being is that it's that kind of detail, believe it or not, that can have an effect on men's minds at times. One of the things that people obviously throw out is that the Bible is so many fairy tales, a once upon a time kind of thing, but it is not. And Luke is is a prime example of that. Again and again, he wants you to know these things that I'm writing about happened. Men saw them, not just man saw them. It wasn't Joseph Smith writing behind a curtain with golden plates that nobody saw using eyeglasses that nobody ever saw either. Rather, this was many witnesses who corroborated the details of the stories. It happened in real time and real space. Luke wants you to know that had you been there, you could have seen Christ crucified, but not just seen Christ crucified. Had you been in the upper room, you would have seen Christ with the apostles, speaking to them, eating and drinking after his crucifixion. The very same Christ who died rose again. That's one of the things that he wants you to know. Now, one of the things about Luke that's very interesting to me is uh, he was almost certainly a Gentile convert to Christianity, uh, given his name and the fact that Paul lists him with other Gentiles. Interestingly enough, that would make Luke the only non-Jewish author in the entire Bible. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Eusebius, the early church historian, says of Luke, Luke, by race an Antiochian, that is, he was uh, from Antioch in Syria, a, a physician by profession, had long been a companion of Paul, and had had more than a casual acquaintance with the rest of the apostles. In two God-breathed books, namely the Gospel and the Acts, he left us examples of the art of soul healing, which he had learned from them. The physician of men became a physician of souls. That has been the case with several other men. One of my heroes, of course, is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who left his thriving uh, practice in Harley Street in London in the 1920s in order to go and become a preacher of the gospel in Aberystwyth in Wales, because he realized that while he could cure men's bodies, They just went on to an inevitable fate. He could not keep them alive forever, and when they died, far too many of them went to hell. And so clearly Luke had that also, that same desire to see people who uh, were mortal. He might be able to bind up their wounds or uh, give them something that would help them with their afflictions, but ultimately what he wanted to do was to spiritually heal them, and that can only happen through the application of the gospel. One thing, though, as we speak about Luke as the writer of this particular gospel, we need to remember he is the writer, but not ultimately the author of the gospel. The author of this and all other scripture is God himself, God the Holy Spirit. You remember 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. The word there is theopneustos, and it means literally God breathed. All scripture is breathed out by God. The words that Luke wrote are the words that God wanted Luke to write. Luke wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But that does not mean that Luke was some sort of robot whose pen was seized by God. You know, I don't know what I'm writing and so on. That was not the case. 
God used all of Luke's own skills. He used his own character, his education, his inquisitiveness, his excellent Greek vocabulary. The Greek of Luke is probably the best in all of the New Testament. And his peculiarities of expression to create the scripture that God intended for you and me to have. Now, Luke could give the results of his own investigations, but ultimately, what he wrote was the product of the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit within him. And every word, therefore, of this gospel that we're about to read together is the inerrant and inspired word of God. These are Luke's words, yes, but they are God's word to you, and we need to remember that. Now, who is this Theophilus to whom Luke was writing? Well, many of you probably already know the name Theophilus means literally friend of God in Greek. And because of that, many people have wondered, was Paul just using that as a general title for all Christians? After all, we're all supposed to be, if we're Christians, friends of God, right? It's supposed to be the thing that marks us. But I, I don't think that's the case. Theophilus was a, a popular name among both Jews and Gentiles at the time. And he uses a title. He calls him Most Excellent Theophilus. And it's not just kind of the uh, uh, Bill and Ted throwaway there. Most Excellent Theophilus. He's not saying it that that way. Most excellent was actually a, uh, a precursor. It was something that you would say when you were addressing an official within the Roman Empire. So it's very possible, in fact, probable that he was a high official. Uh, Theophilus could have been uh, you know, an assistant to a governor or something. Uh, Paul uses that title, most excellent, when he's addressing the Roman governors, Felix and Festus, for instance. Also, he indicates that Theophilus was being instructed. That is, that he was a catechumen, somebody who was relatively new to the Christian faith and who was being instructed in its essentials. So it seems that these books were intended for him but they were copied and they came to be a blessing to all the church. It's very possible that Theophilus, being a high official, had the wherewithal to pay not only for these books to be written by Luke in the first place, but then to be distributed to all of the churches. That's one of the wonderful things that we see in Christian history happening again and again, which is that people with great wealth often become Christians and then they take that wealth and they use it for the building up of the church. There are a ton of different institutions that go on to this day that were raised up by wealthy Christian benefactors. We remember that the, the revival that took place in England was mostly made uh, possible by the, the work of Selina, or the wealth actually, of Selina, Countess of Huntington, who sponsored men like George Whitfield and John Wesley in order that they might take their gospel throughout England and beyond the bounds of England to the new world, to America here. That wealth that God gives us, we remember that uh, it's not money that's evil, it's the love of money that's evil. And using money for the spread of the gospel is a wonderful thing, so it's very possible that that's what Theophilus did. When was it written? Well, the earliest probable date uh, that people have put on it is 62 AD. Uh, Paul reached Rome in or about year 60, and since the book of Acts covers the life of Paul until the time when he had spent two years in Roman imprisonment, uh, Luke cannot have finished it before the year 62. As to the latest possible date, um, it, it, it's more difficult, uh, but it is 
um, said that Paul was released in about 63 or AD or soon afterward, and Acts ends with Paul still in prison. So the book was probably written between 62 and 63 AD, somewhere within that time frame. Uh, if Luke had known about Paul's release, he would have mentioned it in the book of Acts, and certainly he wrote before the deaths of, of Paul and Peter um, in or a little after 64 AD. And the book itself does not record the destruction of Jerusalem. It speaks about it prophetically as something coming, but it hadn't happened yet. So we know that the upper end bumper is definitely 70 AD. It's probably written sometime around 62, 63 AD. But more important than when he wrote is why he wrote. Now, I discussed that a little last week when I talked about why the Gospels themselves were written generally, but why is he writing? Well, he's, he makes it very clear that his readers, and that includes all of you, okay, who are going to be reading through it with me, God willing, you might know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed, as he says in verse 4. He wants you to understand that this gospel account is not merely wishful thinking, that this is not a work of fiction. He wants you to know that it is a true and inspired account or narrative of the events of the life of Jesus Christ. Events that men witnessed, events that happened. Christianity, you need to remember always, is a religion built on facts, not on wishes, not on the desire of man to try to climb into the heavens, but rather based upon the sound revelation given by God and events that actually happened. In that, it is quite unlike all the man-made religions with all their contradictions and speculations. And therefore, the job of a faithful minister opening up the word of God, opening up the gospel of Luke, is the same as that of the apostles. My job, my calling, is to tell you not my opinions, tell you things that might be true. My calling is to tell you the facts of the gospel and then explain how that affects you. Because, brothers and sisters, this is the gravest news that you can receive. It's the most important news that you can receive. We hear all sorts of things, little tidbits of information all the time. Never before have we had so much worthless information being pumped towards us via various social media and, and so on and things like that as we are today. Most of the stuff that you will hear and receive is relatively worthless, if not entirely worthless but not so with the gospel account. These things are the most important things because they are things that transcend even life. These are the things of eternity. These are the things that your soul depends upon, your welfare for the rest of time on into eternity depends upon your reaction to the gospel. Did you know that? It is the most important thing that you will ever have to deal with. And if you reject it, the consequences could not be more dire. They are also not dull facts. The gospel is not a dull thing. These are some of the most exciting uh, and important facts imaginable. Some facts are, are dull in of themselves. You know, if I was to, to talk about Amazon sales and things like that, you might all go to sleep after a while. They're not very interesting. But not only are the facts important and interesting, I mean, think about this. If the Son of God becoming incarnate, coming down to earth, living for you, dying for you, rising again from the dead, if that isn't exciting to you, then what is? 
TikTok dances? I mean, what do they compare to that? Nothing at all. No, the great facts of the gospel aren't dull, but admittedly, sometimes the way that they are dealt with can make them deathly dull. Dorothy Sayers, a, a great author, she was a British mystery writer and also a Christian, a Christian apologist, she said that the gospel was so important and exciting that it took years and years of theological education and diligent training in order for ministers of the Church of England to make it truly dull. That is how important and exciting this word is. She also wrote, interestingly enough, what a crime making the gospel bland and inoffensive by pulling its teeth, taking away the edge of this, this sharper than any other two-edged sword, dulling it and making it into a butter knife was, making it into a religion of be nice platitudes, of moralism, therapeutic and moralistic deism, as it's sometimes called in the modern world. How awful that is. She wrote this. She said, not Herod, not Caiaphas, not Pilate, not Judas ever contrived to fasten upon Jesus Christ the reproach of insipidity. The final indignity was left, or rather that final indignity, was left for pious hands to inflict, to make of his story something that could neither startle, nor shock, nor terrify, nor excite, nor inspire a living soul, is to crucify the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So I will strive desperately as we go through the gospel not to make it insipid, not to take the salt away or the saltiness away from the salt, not to blunt the edge of the sword. This means that it will wound some of your consciences. It may enrage you. It may cause you to become disturbed. But then again, that's the work of the gospel, disturbing the comforted and comforting the disturbed doing both of these things. So the point then that Luke is making in his introduction is that this account of his is a faithful and an orderly recounting of the facts. It's designed to make known to those who have been uh, begun to be instructed in the basics of the gospel a full account of what actually happened. And that was becoming necessary in Luke's time as, as the people who had seen these things were gradually dying off either through persecution or old age. And as it no longer became feasible to simply transmit the facts of the gospel through the oral history, they needed a written account so that they could send these things throughout the Gentile world. And eventually the day would come, obviously, when all the eyewitnesses would have gone to glory. But their sure testimony, because of the work of authors like Luke, would be before us, would be written down. And that testimony, brothers and sisters, provides us with a sure, rock-solid, God-inspired foundation for your belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you stand upon the Gospels, you are standing on solid ground. Remember this, if all of this Gospel stuff had just been a sham, then Luke's diligent investigation would have exposed that. But what Luke is giving you in this book is the eyewitness accounts of what men who walked with Christ saw. Peter puts it this way when he talks about the importance of leaving a record like the Gospel of Luke. He says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but where we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So the evidence is all here. It's recorded by Luke. But we know that evidence enough, or evidence that should be enough, is often not enough enough to convince people. I'll give you an example of that. I, I, I go on 
well, you know this, I live on Facebook. No, I don't really live there, but I, I do visit it quite a bit because it, to me it's the highways and the byways, but I'm constantly amazed to find, for instance, flat earthers amongst my friends on Facebook. And I've engaged them a few times. I, I pointed out things like I've seen, I've said, I, I, I've actually been to the seashore. I've actually watched ships disappear over the horizon. I've seen that happen. I've been up really, really high in an airplane and actually been able to see on the horizon the curvature of the earth. You can actually begin to see the atmosphere and the way it goes like this. I, I, I know you can sail west from California and through a little judicious navigation end up in New York. That wouldn't be possible if the, you weren't on a globe because New York is east of California. I've pointed out things like uh, I, I, I've seen the, the moon and other planets through telescopes, and they're all clearly globes. They're clearly round. Wouldn't it be weird if we were the only pancake in the entire solar system? <laughs> Very strange, wouldn't it be? I've seen the, the pics of the Earth taken from the moon, taken from Voyager, taken from ISS and all these other probes. I've seen men jump off of platforms of, of balloons that have reached the, the highest limits of the outer atmosphere before they burst. And seeing clearly they're jumping onto a globe and so on. I, you put that before them. I presented that evidence, but to no avail in almost every single case. Fake, 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 fake. Congratulations, we, we, we can't, you know, cover up most things, but uh, the, the fact that the earth is flat and Jeffrey Epstein's client list, we've got that down. Those are the two things that we've managed to cover up. Brothers and sisters, it's, it's bizarre that we would dismiss so much evidence, but we do it, why? It's not because of a lack of facts. It's because of the inclination of our hearts. If we do not believe the gospel, as I did not believe the gospel for so many years, although I knew very, very, very little about the gospel. I thought I did. You know what's funny, isn't it, how atheists always think that people who never read the Bible know more than people who always read the Bible, about the Bible? Isn't that weird? But that's the way it is. That was me. I was sure I knew more than every Christian who'd ever walked the face of the planet about the Bible. I didn't. I didn't know the evidence. I wasn't willing to accept the evidence until the Holy Spirit did his work in my heart. So if you are going to believe the gospel, it's going to take more than just the piling up of facts. It's going to take the removal of the veil that lays over all men's hearts naturally. It's going to take the illuminating grace of the Holy Spirit. I pray that he's already done that with you. Or I pray that through his word and his effectual calling that he will do that with you. Because it is of such importance. Without it, you won't see the truth. And if you don't see the truth, you won't respond to the truth. If you don't know your way out of the burning building, you'll never be able to make it. Luke shows you the way. He shows you the way to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He shows you a Savior who wasn't being preached when he was a young man. A gospel that came to him. A gospel that set him free. If he was a slave, he became a slave of Christ. And the truth truly set him free. To be slaves of Christ is to be free indeed. I hope you learn that. I hope you know that. I hope you go through the same dramatic change of heart that Luke did. I pray that it's already happened already and that you will grow more and more in your understanding. Let's go before the Lord who gives us this word. God, our gracious Father, I pray, Lord, that as we go through the book of Luke, that people would understand that this is more than just a comforting story. It's more than simply a book of morals. It tells us how we're to live. 
It tells us what we're to believe. It tells us the truth about Jesus Christ. Help us, therefore, O Lord, to read it and understand it with new eyes. If we've read it before, O Lord, bring new things to our attention. Lord, there are so many details here. I am amazed I can go through the same section of Scripture, find something, and say, why didn't I see that before? And I thank you for your grace in opening up these things to us. Be with us now as we go through the book of Luke, and let it be a balm to our souls.